Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Ravely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Scott. How are you? I'm warm. It's warm here today in our uh, studio, which which is exciting because we um, it was so cold this spring. I told myself I never complained. So just for the record, that wasn't a complaint. It just was a fact. It's just it's a warm. fact. It's just, just a fact. fact. It's warm. It's not a complaint. You have no response to the fact that it's warm. It's just warm. I, I'm unemotional about that. Yep. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yes, it is. And don't, don't make me laugh, though, because I'll get warmer. <laughs> yeah. It's taking too much energy, and we're just warming That's right. up. So, uh, well, what, what do you think we're going to talk about today? What, what, where are we aiming for? We're not just going to talk about the weather, that, though that could be interesting. Yeah, that's not exactly under our control or anything that we, uh, not much we can do about it. But um, there are some things under our control. And one of them is what is commonly called culture. And that is uh, something I think is probably worth talking about. And we're going to talk about it here because really two reasons. One is that engaging culture is one of the things that ends up uh, really uh, influencing the church and how the church perceives itself. And one of the things we're trying to do with Sidon Hill is keep uh, the keep the church on task, help the church remain faithful to its uh, calling in the midst of pressure that comes from politics or culture. And it turns out that politics is uh, really, um, for some people especially, much of the answer to the question, Mm. how do we influence culture? Uh, Many of us say, how do we influence culture? Many people say, well, politics is certainly one way, and it is. And so um, I think... And also <clears throat> part of culture. Boom, boom, boom. I'm just, just thinking it's getting meta over here. But. <laughs> Eric's thinking. Eric's thinking. <laughs> and when Eric thinks, it gets meta. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I think it's probably helpful to start off with, um, you know, a definition of culture and what we're talking about. And we're probably going to be much more broad and much uh, kind of removed from what somebody might think. Because when I say culture, people are thinking of music or movies or mm-hmm. they're thinking of, uh, they probably should think of school starting up or football season mm-hmm. starting, things that are uh, part of our cult- culture. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the uh, one of my favorite books on culture is called Culture Making by Andy Crouch. And he's... Um, He says, or he quotes uh, somebody named Ken Myers and says that culture is what we make of the world. And culture is what we make of the world. And I I think that's really great because it's a simple definition. But if you think of, I mean, what is is football season? It's what we make of the world during the fall. What is school? It's what we make of the world during Mm -hmm. the daytime when you're a child. What is a car? It's something we make of the world. Or just basically anything, music or anything that you would think is cultural, it fits really that description. 
And if it's something we don't make in the world, uh, say a river or a mountain, mm. uh, it's not culture. We might make a map that includes rivers and mountains. Okay. And uh, when we do that, then we've engaged in culture because we're representing something and we're making something of the world. Mm-hmm. So for what it's worth, I, that, I hope that's uh, helpful. That is helpful. And today I was at the, the county fair. Something we make uh, of the world. Something we make of the world. And actually had a little bit of those thoughts because I, I spent every summer as a boy at the fair every day, sunrise to sunset. I did too. Because we raised pigs and we... Uh, showed the pigs and auctioned the pigs. So that was a great time. But it, I didn't really have a very good outside perspective of the fair. That's just what you did. And then here I was at the fair today and was just observing. This is a very interesting cultural, making of the world. Cultural experience. We got and the booths and we got the food and we got the animals. And yeah. there's a special grounds for it. That's a that's a very human, which is almost like a dumb thing to say, right? It's, it's a very human thing that has happened with the county fair and it's, it's something we do, and even county by county. We organize ourselves around um, well, people you, bringing their stuff to their county fair you know, agriculturally. It's just it's it, super fascinating. So we're here, just a couple of farm boys, talking about the county fair. Because, yeah, I spent my summers in the county fair, too, when I was growing up, but with sheep, not with pigs. But I'll tell you, the auctioning at a county fair is a good deal for a kid. Oh, it's fantastic. And, uh, so I got my first drum set. That's actually, I was thinking about that this morning for some reason. That's how I financed my trip to Iran uh, when I was in high school, was from the sale of sheep. This uh, has become the the fair reminiscing tour. There you go. Um, (laughs) All culture. Well, you think about it. I mean, we're going tonight to the rodeo at the fair. Mm. You were there today, but I'm going to the rodeo, which I'm deliberately going to wear shorts to the rodeo, which is a cultural faux pas. That's true. But I'm going to do it anyway because it's really hot. And uh, we're going with some... Um, it's going to look really weird with the boots, I'm just saying. Some young people. <laughs> we're going with some young people from, uh, from Slovenia. And we're going because it's a cultural event. Mm. I mean, that's really the explanation for why we're going to the fair tonight. Because it's a, a cultural experience. Uh, meaning, we make some different things of the world here right. than they do over there. And they've never seen you know, anyone make this kind of thing mm-hmm. of the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> which it makes me laugh uh, because since you and I both grew up there, right? Right. But um, I, I think it's important for us to say that. Now, when we talk about county fairs or football season, uh, we're, we're kind of on safe, you might say safe moral ground. Mm. Uh, some people might take some, you know, moral uh, umbrage to their treatment of animals or safety at football game, you know, football player, uh, football players or something. But for the most part, that's pretty safe. When you start talking about other cultural things like movies or pornography or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for some people, um, public school curriculum or whatever Mm -hmm. you're going or industry or business or yeah. And, or capitalism, Mm -hmm. all of these things that we make of the world Every time you start, ta- you know, venturing very far into culture past the county fair, you start having uh, really moral conversations, and you have to decide how do you engage those cultural, you know, things. Uh, what is it about that um, cultural event, or um, that you have to? Um, how does how does the Bible or 
your Christianity interact with those cultural artifacts? That's the um, that's really the question that we run into, mm. and then you you broaden that a little bit, and the question becomes: How does the church engage the culture? Right. And that how does the church engage a culture? I think is going to be the topic for today, mm-hmm. <laughs> because there are, there are a number of uh, things, and just uh, we're going to depend real heavily today on uh, Center Church by Timothy Keller, uh, doing balanced gospel center ministry in your city. And uh, y'all should read that book. It, I mean, I require it in, in some of the classes that I teach because it's just so so good. But he gives an interesting story about why this is a why this is an issue and it's an issue for us. He talks about his parents who were born in the 1920s, who were evangelical Christians, and he talks about his wife's parents, who were born in the same decade um, and in the same state, but were not evangelical Christians. And he said, if you ask the four of them what they believed about the morality of sex outside marriage, homosexuality, and abortion, or about almost any economic or ethical issue, such as going into debt or national pride or patriotism, you'd hear almost identical answers. And he says, why? Because that era had a cultural consensus about basic moral convictions. In other words, and and this I think is a historical uh, artifact, it's something we have to deal with, is that our culture had been so influenced by Protestant Christianity for, mm. you know, so many years that the definition of those basic moral things was the same whether or not you were informed by the church or whether you were just informed by the culture that had been informed by the church. Right. And, um, you know, he he throws out that, that his own personal case study to, just to remind us that that same thing wouldn't happen now. Mm-hmm. That same thing, you wouldn't have um, people say, well, probably right now, you wouldn't have uh, people say that their grandparents would have the same views, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. I would think, right. you know, people right. your age, your grandparents uh, would probably be different. But you think about, you know, the next generation, the generation after that, I mean, people who are my contemporaries, um there is a big difference between how they view uh, those moral things than if they're in the church or if they're out of the church. And so I think right. that that's, a, that's something that we've got to uh, really own up to and say, yeah. And then what do you do about that? Right. See, that's, that's I think, the, the question. What do you do about that? Because for some people, the, the thing is you fight. For others, is you withdraw. For some, mm-hmm. you... You know, there's all sorts of answers, and, and Keller in his book uh, gives us several of those. But uh, well, if I can read one of his quotes before we jump okay. further in, because uh, we're, we're talking about culture and, and what what of it is it good? Is it bad? Is it helpful? Is it not? And he has a couple sentences in here that I think is is helpful to just give you a good observation of culture, even if it's the one you're super familiar with. He says, um, "Every human culture is an extremely complex mixture of brilliant truth." marred half-truths, and overt resistance to the truth. He didn't say some cultures. He said every culture. Um, Every culture will have some idolatrous discourse within it, and yet every culture will have some witness to God's truth in it. God gives out good gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty, and skill completely without regard for merit. Uh, And he keeps keeps going, and it's probably all worth reading, but I think that's helpful. Just just like humans, uh, 
uh, you look at a human and say, made in the image of God, there's something good there, uh, but we're also broken by sin. So it's a, it's a similar relationship. You look at any culture, there's going to be some truth there, there's going to be some half-truths, and there's going to be some straight-up resistance to truth. And I think that's why we have to ask, how are we going to engage it? Because can't, it can't just be um, unimpeded, yep, I take all of it, I don't change anything, and it can't be complete rejection either. Uh, so it makes it very complex. You know, it's a little bit like asking a fish, um, how do you interact with the water? And the fish probably doesn't know the answer to that question. I guarantee you that fish doesn't say anything to that question. <clears throat> probably not. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're dealing with a really dumb fish here on this show today. But yeah, I think that's probably the kind of thing, though, that we've got to come to grips with, right? And um, anyway, in Center Church, he offers uh, what he calls different models. And before we even do that, I you know kind of rehearse what he has to say. I just think it's worth stopping to say that he suggests that there are models, not one model, mm. that there's not one uniform Christian way of interacting with culture. And there are some that are better than others. I think you can say that. But I think one of the things that happens is that we, and, and this happens in so, so many areas of church life, is you make kind of a, uh, a litmus test about what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is evangelical, what is unorthodox, mm -hmm. and how people engage with culture is one of those things that makes somebody in or out sometimes as though I've got the full answer. Right. And what I, uh, reading Center Church and what thinking about this, what I hope our podcast today does, is to say we may not have the right answer. And uh, we might have the right answer even for today, but things will change. And then we might not have the right, same right answer tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So we have to do some, uh, I think we have to do some thinking, we have to do some reflection and prayer and figure out what it is that is going to lead us to the right kind of engagement with uh, culture. So do you want to talk us through a couple of these? Yeah, let's go with the first. Um, we'll just talk about transformationalist or transformationist model. Um, well, should we talk about Niebuhr a little bit? Or Niebuhr? You could if you want. You could. Uh, so what Keller does in his book, and again, if you haven't read it, you should read it. Uh, just buy that book. It's on Kindle. You can do it. It's easy. It's actually not on Kindle. It's not on Kindle anymore? I just no. still have it on Kindle? Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've tried it. Like I told you, I have classes read it, and we couldn't get it. We couldn't even get the full book. They, they like, cut it up because it's such a... Oh, uh, wow. Such a... It's, it's like a textbook. Wow. Okay. But, yeah, it's... That's so surprising. You still should read it, and you, you still, still can get it. used you just copies. Can't get it on Kindle. But it's really rough to just get um, all together. So anyway, sorry about interrupting you on that. No worries. So he, he references um, a classic book, Christ and Culture, by Richard Niebuhr. And uh, what Richard Niebuhr does is work through different prepositions, basically. There's a Christ against culture model. There's a Christ of culture model, um, a Christ above culture a Christ and culture and paradox, and then his kind of final answer is it should be Christ transforming culture, and that's um, the, the Niebuhr preferred, preferred model. Um, so the first one that um, Keller engages is the trans transformationist model, um, which engages culture largely through an emphasis on Christians pursuing their vocations from a Christian worldview and thereby changing culture. Um, so if even if the word worldview kind of rings a bell to you, you may have 
you may be part of that type of model um, or grown up in that in that type of model. I remember going to Worldview Academy when I was in high school and like studying cool. some of this stuff and um, getting the right worldview so you can apply the right worldview so then you can in turn transform um, the culture around you because you're going to engage. Um, so it's very much a there's Ooh. a there's there's definitely engagement involved in the transformationist model um, and we can walk through all this but one of the key things is they view the they would view secular work as an important way to serve Christ and his kingdom um, just as one would do ministry in the church you would do ministry somewhere else you can engage maybe politics you can engage something else but you're going to be the Christian in that place you're going to be the Christian in the workplace you're going to be the Christian in in whatever realm you're in, um, with the hopes of transforming. So then mm-hmm. you're going to transform the culture. So that's the, um, that's the, I, I keep wanting to say posture, but that's the model um, for, so how does a Christian engage culture? The main aim is transforming because we're assuming something is broken about it. So let's, let's do the transforming work um, by the way, by the way we engage our work in the culture. And so I think that that's, again, one of the reasons that we're taking this up here is that uh, Christians who engage in the sphere of politics, for instance, the assumption is that they will engage politics to transform politics into something Christian. Mm-hmm. See, or to or to engage in the school to transform the school into something Christian, and that is uh, really, I think, an assumption that is uh, right, maybe over the top, probably. That one goes back to our question we did a couple episodes ago. Um, where I have people come up and say, oh, yeah, we need more Christians in politics. My mind usually goes to transformationist. Like, oh, are you trying to They're expecting make you an to institution trans- Christian? They're expecting you to transform right. the entire state of Oregon into... Right. right. Which is not... <laughs> not Good luck goal. with that, Eric. <laughs> so what are some other problems with um, the transformationist? Well, it, these are these are Keller's evaluations, right? Mm-hmm. And he he suggests that the very fact that you're talking about it as a worldview uh, places it in the realm of um, you know, the intellectual world or cognitive. Um, it gives you kind of a cognitive outlook on the world, mm-hmm. which has um, it's only part right. I right. think you know the the transfer transformationism is often marked by an underappreciation for the church that. Really, that it is the Christian who is involved in the secular society, and that's sort of it. The witness mm. of the corporate church is underdeveloped in this view. Um, he suggests that transformationism tends to be triumphalistic, self-righteous, and overconfident in its ability to both understand God's will for society and to bring it about. In other words, the expectations of, of this transformational model are a little bit too high. And, um, and then it puts uh, too much stock in politics as a way to change culture, which uh, he wrote this several years ago. And, you know, it was really the, probably a decade before he wrote this, or maybe two decades before he wrote it, when the, the evangelical church really was putting stock in politics and there mm. was a moral majority and all of that. Um, to change the culture, and then uh, his last his last critique is that the transformationists don't recognize the dangers of power. They'll pursue political power in, in particular, and not recognize that that um, creates uh, an issue for uh, 
for Christians when when Jesus set aside his power and and then he's then to suggest that the Christian answer is to grab for power mm-hmm. is a little bit problematic. So that was his critique of it. And I think it's important to say that there is a lot that's good about it and mm-hmm. that it's, um, uh, I think, worth uh, thinking about. But I think it's also, uh, we need to be humble and say, well, maybe there are some other ways to look at it. Mm. So another way. <clears throat> okay. Uh, and the second one that Keller deals with is the, he calls the relevance model. Um, and I think in, in the Niebuhr, or the, is it Niebuhr or Niebuhr? Ne- Niebuhr, I think. Uh, I think in the Niebuhr uh, way of talking about it, it'd be Christ of culture, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, this um, So in the relevance model, uh, it the model sees Christianity as being fundamentally compatible with the surrounding culture. So if you're talking about um, co- uh, there's good and then there's brokenness, um, the relevance model is going to emphasize the good and the good in culture. Um, so it's it's easier to take on more of the culture and not have to transform it, not have to uh, change it. He, uh, Keller talks about um, those in the relevance model being very optimistic about cultural trend, trends and feel less need to reflect on them or exercise discernment um, or respond in discriminating ways. It's just you can kind of just take it on. You don't have to really uh, filter through. Um, let, let, let me just stop right there, right? Because I, I can hear some listeners saying, well, of course, that's ridiculous. You, you can't just take on, you know, you can't adopt it without thinking about it. You can't, uh, you know, they're not compatible. Well, I, th- I, think, I think what you're saying is not that they're completely compatible, but you're saying there are good things in culture no that, doubt. that we could uh, utilize. I mean, I just think about the pandemic, right? And we, we had online church, which which is a cultural artifact. It's a cultural thing. We made it of the world. Mm-hmm. And it was it was good to get us through the pandemic. Right. And I was thankful for it. And, you know, now we have future conversations about is that good in a non-pandemic time and how does that relate to all the other um, ways people should think about church. So we have to evaluate it. But, but, to, but to throw it away wholesale and say, no, culture is always bad. I think this one of the things of having another model, right, suggests that, yeah, there are some good things that are mm-hmm. useful. So right, anyway, right. I just interrupt you because I think that uh, I, I just can hear people like really, you know, frustrated about that. Right. Well, it, it almost assumes a different aspect of, of truth and, and may potentially could overemphasize it where transformationists would overemphasize something else like this mm-hmm. broken thing needs to be transformed. Yeah. Um, the, the relevant would uh, maybe overemphasize the good and we can, we can just take, take everything on almost wholesale and not have to, not have to worry about it. Um, the, uh, so the, those who hold to this model seldom speak of a Christian worldview, uh, unlike the transformationists. Uh, the very concept of worldview assumes a much greater gap or antithesis between Christian truth and human culture than this more optimistic model sees. And that's what Keller said. Um, and if you were to look at kind of who fits in this um, in this model, one of the first on that spectrum would be like a uh, seeker-sensitive model, um, one that wants to uh, be comfortable. Um, so if someone comes in and they're from, quote-unquote, the culture, you want to be able to walk in and go, oh, I'm familiar with this. And that's because uh, those 
engaging a relevant model have already taken on a lot of the cultural artifacts of culture around them. So yeah, it's similar. There's, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of countercultural happening. You walk into a church that is more on the seeker sensitive side and you go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable here. I don't have to learn a bunch of new artifacts, new culture pieces because they've already been adopted. Well, then again, when he, when Eric talking about seeker, um, sensitive churches or seeker churches, um, there was a movement a little bit earlier than when Keller wrote this book that said, let's take the artifacts of Christianity out of the church, like a cross in the front or something that the things that might offend, let's bring people in, even use secular music that would, um, people would recognize and be comfortable with and just make that transition from outside of the church to inside the church as smooth as possible you know, culturally, mm-hmm. which is very interesting if you think about what is going on there, right? And how, you know, can you really do that? And what is the church about? But that the assumption is that, that, you know, you can take the culture, at least some things that are good about the culture and, and make that transition to be smooth. So much so that they would say, well, why don't you try on being a Christian before mm-hmm. you actually become one? Hmm. Which, if you think about that theologically, there, right, right. there are some pretty serious issues with that. But the idea being that you know we're going to make this culturally so smooth that you can come along this this continuum in into the church of Jesus in some sort of a smooth way. But mm-hmm. anyway, and then you're you're saying that's that's kind of the um, one of the first ways you'd recognize that. But then there's more, right? That goes farther. Yeah, yeah. It could be more. Um more prominent in in that model, um, I think that would be the first step. I'm looking back at my notes. Yeah, you could you could in a, in the relevance model, you could go to uh, emerging church or, or liberal mainline church or even a liberation theology, and the, and as you stair step out of that, um, it becomes more prominent in that model, um, where the almost the distinction between church and and culture is is blurred even more because there's there's so much borrowed. Yeah, and and again, the theological questions, the the cognitive questions that were raised by the trans, uh, transformational model are not really raised here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Um, <clears throat> so we've kind of talked a little bit about um, the problems that Keller brings up as uh, as we were talking through some of the distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, but by ad- adapting, one of the things he says is by adapting so heavily and readily to the culture, such co- churches are quickly seen as dated whenever the culture shifts or changes, which I just think is super fascinating. Any of those 1990s um, seeker-sensitive style churches, if they have not changed, you go there now and go, oh, this is an interesting dated artifact of culture because mm. <laughs> uh, th- this is like 1995, and they, I remember what 1995 was like. They made something of the world mm-hmm. in 1995 that yeah, you don't make anymore necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the second thing he brings up would be the, the attitude – this stance has towards doctrine. So if you're constantly trying to make uh, what Scott was talking about, make it comfortable, make it that a comfortable shift from culture to church, I think some of the things that are most distinctive uh, between the church and culture are doctrine. And they're the things that uh, it'll be tempting to soften if you're trying to remain relevant with culture, because there is clear distinction there, um, doctrine of the church and and what the what the culture cares about or emphasizes. So there's there's going to be a temptation to soften those in this model. Um, yeah, that's probably good. That's good. Uh, the third one, counterculturalist model. Um, 
and I believe in the Niebuhr to be Christ against culture, um, is given this name, this is what Keller says, because those within this model place their emphasis on the church as a contrast society to the world. So those operating in this model do not see God working redemptively through cultural movements outside the church. So they, and I think uh, well, see the church as a distinct um, institution apart from culture, um, but they they will discount uh, cultural movements that could be potentially redemptive that aren't attached to the church. So we're going to keep these two things separate. There's there's the counterculture movement here, and then there's everything else over there, and um, it, it needs to remain counterculture. There needs to be a separation there between between those two things. Well, I'm just trying to think where you'd see this, right? And I mean, one of the places I think you'd see this would be I, you might see it in music, but you pr- would most more clearly see it in movies, probably, mm. because there is a genre of Christian movie. That's, this is true. And then there is movies. <laughs> and and the Christian movies are not trying to transform the movie industry. They're trying to have an alternative right. for Christian people. See, and that alternative then is is this countercultural thing. We're going to have a, a countercultural alternative for Christians. I think some of that probably has to do, too, with, like with schools. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a school that's going to be countercultural rather than try and transform the public school right. or something to that effect. And I think that, again, the reason I say that is because, you know, transformational is, you know, that's all great until it doesn't transform. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the one we just talked about, which one? what's the name of it? Relevance. <laughs> the relevance model is great until you end up with the same problem the world has. Right. So then you're going to do a countercultural, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so that's a... Um, I, I think that's really interesting because part of me just says, I heard transformational, I think, yes, we should trans. And then I heard relevance, of course the gospel is relevant. And I think countercultural, well, yeah, it needs to be countercultural. See, and, and again, right. having models that, that help us see that different aspects that need to be treated differently is mm-hmm. really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got a countercultural uh, model of engaging or uh, interacting with the, the culture. Right. And this, uh, this model is going to avoid concentrating on the culture really at all because we're, we're countercultural. We don't need to engage this the way the relevant model does, and we don't need to transform it the way the transformationist model does um, because we are separate from it. So that, that, that is the posture of this model. Um, counterculturalists predict that when Christians try to make the world more like the church, they succeed only in making the church like the world which is almost the critique of the relevant model from the it different... It is. Yeah, it is the other a model. Critique, yeah. And then uh, Keller points out, counterculturalists insist that instead of trying to change the culture through this consumeristic narrative, the church needs to follow Christ outside the camp and identify with the poor and marginalized, um, which, again, very biblical. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a biblical posture. I think there, there's... They're getting a lot right there. I think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the... Uh, some of the problems that Keller notes, critics of the counterculturalist model charge that there is more pessimist pe- that it is more pessimistic about the prospect of social change than is warranted. Um, and there's, if 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 your model orients around countercultural, you're you're bound to be more pessimistic because it's automatically um, an adverse relationship with the culture. So uh, you base you're gonna you're gonna be tempted to just think nothing can change. It doesn't matter. We're not connected. So we're going to stay, uh, stay disconnected. And we've talked about this here quite a bit before. It's us against them. Uh-huh. 
this is very much an us against them posture, which, you know, some transformationalists would say that as well, talk that way, but it's us against them. And uh, then it tends to be uh, more polarized and demonizing of business, you know, capitalism, government, all those things. Mm. And some of those, depending depending on the culture, some of those are aspects of um, the image of God worked out well. Um, and if you are broadly demonizing the the cultural artifacts, then you you're uh, pointing out what what good what image bearers have made that is good that is part of um, participating with God in creation or recreation. Um, uh, and then perhaps unintentionally, this is another note from Keller, this model may undermine a church's emphasis and skill at evangelism even more than the relevance model may, which I just think is in- interesting. There's such, there's such a distinction there, uh, such a countercultural um, posture with, with the culture that it's going to downplay evangelism. Um, and that's the temptation, right? Like if you overemphasize this, then you're going to remain um, withdrawn from culture which affects your ability to evangelize. Which means you withdraw from people mm-hmm. or you demonize them and it's us against them. And uh, again, I think that's I think that's a really interesting critique, it, especially the way he says, even more than the revel- relevance model may. Because I can see somebody critiquing that and saying, well, you're watering down the message. Right. Well, you're, you're, but you're giving them a message. Mm-hmm. You know, in some respect, I like what they're doing more than what I'm not doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in that regard... But I think the temptation is to to sit back and uh, to maybe to lob, sort of lob, you know, gospel grenades to uh, across the chasm to somebody here. But that's that, that doesn't make you skillful in evangelism, right? Right. What are those? What are the names of those little tracks? Is it chick chick, chick tracks? Chick, yeah, JT chick tracks. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> the gospel blimp. That, yes. those, those are what I would read as a kid in, in church when I didn't want to pay attention. I'd just be reading the little... You little probably thing. were reading it at the county <laughs> fair when, you know, you were just waiting around. Those are some creepy things. Some <laughs> creepy little books. Um, the, the fourth model is the two kingdoms model. Um, and this, uh, Keller points out, two, kingdom, two kingdoms proponents, um, they, they talk about two different kingdoms. There's the redemptive kingdom, um, and then there's the... Uh, the common or the secular kingdom, would they use secular? I might have just used that word, but I'm not sure that they would use that word. But um, there's two different kingdoms, and we participate in these two different kingdoms in different ways. And we, we do participate, um, but the, the work I do in the common kingdom will be different than the work I do in the, um, in the redemptive kingdom. And two kingdom, kingdoms proponents, unlike those in the counterculturalist model, um, place a high value on Christians pursuing their work in secular vocations. So... Uh, one of the stories that comes to and it's probably apocryphal, but it's still helpful to illustrate the point. Um, someone became a Christian several hundred years ago, and they asked Martin Luther, one of the um, one of the reformers in the Protestant Reformation, "I became a Christian. Now I I make shoes. What what, what do I do now? I'm a Christian. So what what am I supposed to do?" And he said, um, "Make excellent shoes at a good price." Like so, you, so that he was pointing out that you are in this common kingdom, so you need to do your work excellently. You need to do it well. That's how you participate well in the common kingdom, and you can do other things in the in the redemptive kingdom. That's more the the spiritual side of things. But there there's different roles to be done, and a lot of culture happens in the common kingdom side. So the what a what a proper response for a Christian would be would be to 
to participate in an excellent way, to, to excel the way you do work or the way you make a craft or the way you participate um, in whatever, maybe even government. Like you're going to do it excellently because that's the, the proper way to engage um, that part, that kingdom. And I think you do, the interesting thing too is that you do it uh, with excellence, but you do it uh, differently than you might if you're a transformationist. Mm-hmm. Because you're not trying to transform that thing, you're trying to represent Jesus in that other kingdom, and so you're not trying to make a uh, distinctively Christian culture, right? School, um, political organization, whatever it is, you're trying to represent the other kingdom mm-hmm. within the common kingdom, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's kind of why you do the work differently, right? Right. Um, the two kingdoms, uh, the two kingdoms proponents part ways not only with transformationist, transformationists, but also with counterculturalists over their view of human government and general world of commerce. So they can they can engage in a different way, um, and they don't have to. It's definitely not demonized because um, there's an excellent way to engage. Uh, common grace comes up a lot. Like what how, what is what is just some of the things that are here and we can participate in. Um, the same way other people do it, but we're going to pursue excellence. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the Christian way of doing things. It's just the excellent way of doing things, which is inherently um, the way God would want you to do something because there is order, there is design um, in creation. I'm suspecting that uh, listeners who are paying attention will recognize some of your answers uh, from your more Christians in politics uh, talk about having a really good plumber come to your house or oh, things yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing I think that uh, Eric would uh, sort of uh, approve anyway here. I, I will not be pigeonholed, though. Yeah, of course you won't. <laughs> of course you won't because you're, you're, you're a politician. Uh, I was like, is that where we're going with that? Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You said it, not me. Oh, shoot. Um, uh, oh, the final implication, um, Keller says, of everything we have said, two kingdoms advocates are very guarded about how much improvement, if any, Christians can expect to see in culture. Uh, because they're different kingdoms, the, the common kingdom will not become the redemptive kingdom. Um, the redemptive kingdom will one day be the only kingdom, but um, they remain separate. So you can be guarded about what you expect to happen. Like, what can we really do here? Whereas a transformationist, um, they're going to, they're going to go for the moon almost like we, we could, we could change this for the better. Um, and I think that that's a pretty helpful distinction, distinction between those two views. Um, so some of the problems that Keller brings up in this view, this model, uh, the, this model gives more weight and credit to the function of common grace than the Bible does. And one of his reasons for saying this is that much of the social good that two kingdoms people attribute to natural revelation, um, or, or common grace, um, or just the things that God has allowed to happen outside of the redemptive narrative, is really the fruit of the introduction of Christian teaching of special revelation, if you will, into world cultures. And I think that's super interesting. So we've talked uh, quite a bit on this podcast about um, just the influences of Christianity on Western civilization or America in general. And if you were to kind of shorten your view and then look out at the world and go, what's good about this culture? And start pointing things out and go, oh, this is just, this is just common grace. And this just happens to be um, 
what belongs to this culture and not realize that there's history behind that that is actually influenced from special revelation, you can inappropriately attribute this is just happening because people are doing this. Um, I think we've, we've mentioned schools already. You could talk about schools or hospitals or mm-hmm. orphanages or um, sa- saving babies that are unwanted, um, even just in an adoption structure. All of that happened post-Christianity and became— um, Well, and because of Christianity. Yes, that's— that, I think you— I, think I, that's I meant a causal going. relationship, yes. Yeah. Um, and th- that happened once— Christians were on the scene and looking around and thinking that actually this, we need to care for those um, that most need help, that can mo- that can least take care of themselves. And that has become a um, almost a, a bedrock portion of, of Western civilization. Like, of course, of course, we take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And of course, we educate people. That was that was really a Christian desire to teach people mm-hmm. how to read so they could read the Bible. And now we have educational systems, and, and hospitals are the same way. So if you're not careful in this view, you could look at things um, that are really the result of Christianity throughout the world and say, oh, this is just natural, and we're going we're gonna to engage this kingdom um, this way. So it could, it could get those crosswise a little bit. Um, and then the, uh, one of the other things, Two Kingdoms model implies or teaches that it is possible for human life to be conducted on a religiously neutral basis. Uh, so again, I think it's a little bit of a temptation. It's kind of a corollary of the other, mm-hmm. because the, I think the having, having Christendom and the artifacts mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Christendom, like you mentioned, uh, that are present, it's easy to attribute you know, neutrality to those things when they're not neutral, Mm-hmm. And then you're assuming more neutrality than is actually there, right? And I think that that's that's one of the things that we, you know, have to. And it's a good thing, but we have to kind of pay attention to really what are our under, assumptions underneath the way that we operate in the world, and we assume that maybe it's neutral when, in fact, it's been really informed by you know a, a mm-hmm. history that uh, has Christianity in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The two, the two kingdoms model, you know, also uh, does promote more withdrawal than the other mm. ones. In other words, you can't change it anyway, and you belong to a kingdom that's going to be successful and win eventually. So, why bother? It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit like you know the he, he talked about Pietism, which is a also a historical uh, sort of quiet way of engaging the world, just staying out of notice and mm-hmm. avoiding the world. And the two kingdoms model would uh, sort of produce that as well. Right. And then he also suggests that uh, it separates clergy and lay people, that uh, there, are, um, there would be a difference between those who are working in the kingdom, the real the kingdom. The redemptive kingdom. Yes, yep. and others are working in the worldly or common kingdom. Right. There, there becomes an unnecessary, unnecessary distinction there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So those are four common, I'll say, uh, models for engage, the church engaging culture. And I think just to give you all a bit of homework, uh, ponder which of these do you think is your default? Um, they're 
that any of these, and I, I've kind of explained what I kind of grew up with. I think the transformationist was was what I was steeped in a little bit as a, as a kid in high school and things like that. So that's probably my default. If I mm. just said, "Oh, this is what this is what's going to happen," and um, but default doesn't necessarily mean good or right. It just is. Uh, so do that as some homework. Figure out which one of these is my default because um, they all have their own temptations to uh, be over overemphasized and they can have some pitfalls. So I think that's worth um, worth ta- worth thinking about and will help you as you are given opportunity to react to culture, which I don't know what's happening in this particular week, but there's something to react to right now. Mm-hmm. And your default is kind of going to emphasize how you do that. So, so there's some homework. We'll talk more about this next week okay. and um, it'll be fun. I think this is, this is good stuff. So, so you don't forget and don't uh, miss that next episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review would go a long way to getting this to other people and share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at city on a hill podcast.com. We've been getting some emails and it's been fantastic. Uh, we love them. So send them our way. And if you want us to share uh, your name, uh, let us know in the email because otherwise we're not really sure what to do and we won't do it. So uh, until next time, we look forward to the next conversation. Thank you.